Alright, now here we are on chapter 9 of Ethics for the New Lim Millennium. If you're just joining us, by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Chapter 9, and it's titled Ethics and Suffering. This one ought to be good. I need some coffee. Alright. I have suggested that we all desire happiness, that genuine happiness is characterized by peace, that peace is most surely attained when our actions are motivated by concern for others, and that this, in turn, entails ethical discipline in dealing positively with afflictive emotion. I have also suggested that in our quest for happiness, we naturally and properly seek to avoid suffering. Let us now examine this quality or state that we wish so strongly to be free from but which lies at the very heart of our existence. Suffering and pain are inalienable, inalienable facts of life. A sentient being, according to my usual definition, is one which has the capacity to experience pain and suffering. One could also say that it is our experience of suffering which connects us to others. It is the basis of our capacity for empathy, but beyond this, we can observe that suffering falls into two interrelated categories. There are the avoidable forms which arise as a consensus, as a consequence of such phenomena as war, poverty, violence, crime, and even things like literacy and certain diseases, illiteracy and certain diseases. Then there are the unavoidable forms which include such phenomena as the problems of sickness, old age, and death. So far, we have mainly been speaking about dealing with avoidable human-created suffering. Now I want to look more closely at that which is unavoidable. The problems and difficulties we face in life are not all like natural disasters. We cannot protect ourselves from them merely by taking suitable precautions, such as storing food. In the case of sickness, for example, no matter how fit we keep ourselves or how carefully we regulate our diet, eventually our bodies give in to physical problems. And when they do, the impact on our lives can be serious. We may be prevented from doing the things we want to do and from going to the places we want to go. Often, we are prevented from eating the foods we like. Instead, we have to take medicines which taste awful. When things get really bad, we can find ourselves enduring days and nights racked with pain to the extent that we may long to die. So far as aging is concerned, from the day we are born, we are faced with the prospect of growing old and losing the suppleness of youth. In time, our hair falls out, our teeth fall out, we lose our eyesight and our hearing. We can no longer digest the foods we once enjoyed. Eventually, we find that we cannot recall events which once were so vivid, or even remember the names of those closest to us. Should we live long enough, we will reach such a state of de uh, decrepitude that others may find the mere sight of us repulsive, though that is precisely the time we will have most need of them. Then comes death. Almost a taboo subject in modern society, it seems. Though eventually we may, we may look forward to it as a relief, and regardless of what may come afterwards, death means that we are parted from our loved ones, from our precious belongings, indeed from all that we hold dear. To this brief description of unavoidable suffering, we must, however, add another category. There is the suffering entailed in meeting with the unwanted, of mishaps and accident. There is the suffering of having what we want taken away from us, as we refugees have lost our countries, many forcibly parted from their loved ones. 
There is the suffering caused by not obtaining what we desire, though we may put great effort into doing so. Despite breaking our back working in the fields, the harvest fails. Despite working day and night at a business venture, it is not successful, though through no fault of our own. Then there is suffering of uncertainty, of never knowing when and where we will meet with adversity. From our own experience, we all know how this can lead to feelings of insecurity and anxiety. In undermining everything we do, there is the suffering of lack of contentment, which arises even when we achieve all that we have striven for. Such events are part of our everyday experience as human beings who desire happiness and not to suffer. As if this were not enough, there is furthermore the fact that the very experiences which ordinarily we suppose to be pleasurable turn out themselves to be a source of suffering. They seem to offer fulfillment, but they do not actually provide it, a phenomenon we looked at earlier in discussion on happiness. In fact, if we think carefully, we will find that we perceive such experiences as pleasurable only insofar as they offset more explicit suffering, as when, for example, we eat to assuage hun hunger. We take one mouthful, then two, three, four, five, and enjoy the experience. But quite soon, although it is the same person and the same food, we begin to find eating objectionable. If we do not stop, eventually it will harm us, just as practically every worldly pleasure comes to harm us when carried into an extreme. This is why contentment is indispensable if we are to be genuinely happy. All these manifestations of suffering are essentially unavoidable and indeed natural facts of existence. This does not mean that finally there is nothing we can do about them, nor do I mean to suggest that it is unrelated to the question of ethical discipline. It is true that, according to Buddhists and other Indian religious philosophies, suffering is seen as a consequence of karma. To suppose, as do quite a lot of people, Easterners and Westerners alike, that this means that everything we experience is predetermined is totally wrong, however. Still less, it is an excuse not to take responsibility in whatever situation we find ourselves. Since the term karma appears to have entered everyday vocabulary, it might be worth, worthwhile to clarify the concept, concept somewhat. Karma is a Sanskrit word meaning action. It denotes an active force, the, inner, the inference being that the outcome of future events can be influenced by our actions. To suppose that karma is some sort of independent energy which predestines the course of our whole life is simply incorrect. Who creates karma? We ourselves. What we think, say, do, desire, and omit creates karma. As I write, for example, the very action creates new circumstances and causes some other event. My words cause a response in the reader's mind. In everything we do, there is cause and effect. Cause and effect. In our daily lives, the food we eat, the work we undertake, and our relaxation are all a function of action, our action. This is karma. We cannot therefore throw up our hands whenever we find ourselves confronted by unavoidable suffering. To say that every misfortune is simply the result of karma is tantamount to saying that we are totally powerless in life. If this were correct, there would be no cause for hope. We might as well pray for the end of the world. A proper appreciation of cause and effect suggests that far from being powerless, there is much we can do to influence our experience of suffering. Old age, sickness, and death are inevitable, but as with the torments of negative thoughts and emotions, we certainly have a choice in how we respond to the occurrence of suffering. If we wish, we can adopt a more dispassionate and rational approach, and on that basis we can discipline our response to it. 
On the other hand, we can simply fret about our misfortunes. But when we do, we become frustrated. As a result, afflictive emotions arise and our peace of mind is destroyed. When we do not restrain our tendency to treat negatively to suffering, to when we do not restrain our tendency to react negatively to suffering, it becomes a source of negative thoughts and emotions. There is thus a clear relationship between the impact of suffering has on our heart and mind and our practice of inner discipline. Our basic attitude towards suffering makes a great difference to the way in which we experience it. Imagine, for example, two people suffering an identical form of terminal cancer. The only difference between these two patients is their outlook on it. One sees it as something to be accepted and, if possible, transformed into an opportunity for developing inner strength. The other reacts to his or her circumstances with fear, bitterness, and anxiety about the future. Now, although purely in terms of physical symptoms, there may be no difference between the two of them in terms of what they are suffering, in actual fact, there is a profound difference in their experience of this illness. In the case of the latter, in addition to physical suffering itself, there is the added pain of inner suffering. This suggests that the degree to which suffering affects us is largely up to us. It is therefore essential to keep a proper perspective on our experience of suffering. We find that when we look at a particular problem from close up, it tends to fill our whole field of vision and look enormous. If, however, we look at the same problem from a distance, automatically we will start to see it in relation to other things. This simple act makes a tremendous difference. It enables us to see that, to see that though a given situation may truly be tragic, even the most unfortunate event has innumerable aspects, has innumerable aspects and can be approached from many different angles. Indeed, it is very rare, if not impossible, to find a situation which is negative, no matter how we look at it. When tragedy or misfortune come our way, as surely they must, it can be very helpful to make a comparison with another event, or to call to mind a similar or worse situation that has befallen, if not ourselves, then others before us. If we can actually shift our focus away from self and toward others, we experience a freeing effect. There is something about the dynamics of self-absorption. We're worrying about ourselves too much, which tends to magnify our suffering. Conversely, when we come to see it in relation to others' suffering, we begin to recognize that, relatively speaking, it is not all that unbearable. This enables us to maintain our peace of mind much more easily than if we concentrate on our problems to the exclusion of all else. As far as my own experience is concerned, I find that when, for example, I hear bad news from Tibet, and sadly this is quite often, naturally my immediate response is one of great sadness. However, by placing it in context and by reminding myself that the basic human disposition toward affection, freedom, truth, and justice must, must eventually prevail, I find I can cope reasonably well. Feelings of helpless anger, which do nothing but poison the mind, embitter the heart, and enfeeble the will seldom arise, even following the worst news. It is also worth remembering that, when the, that the time of greatest gain in terms of wisdom and inner strength is often that of greatest difficulty. With the right approach, and here we see once more the supreme importance of developing a positive attitude, the experience of suffering can open our eyes to a reality. For example, my own experience of life as a refugee has helped me realize that the endless protocol, which, which was such an important part of my life in Tibet, was quite unnecessary. We also find that our confidence and self-reliance can grow and our courage become strengthened as a result of suffering. This can be inferred from what we see in the world around us. Within our own 
refugee community, for example, along with, among the survivals of our early years in exile, are a number who, though they suffer terribly, are among the spiritually strongest and most cheerfully carefree individuals I have the privilege to know. Conversely, we find that in the face of even relatively slight adversity, some people who have everything are inclined to lose hope and become despondent. There is a natural tendency for wealth to spoil us. The result is that we find it progressively more difficult to bear easily the problems everyone must encounter from time to time. Let us now consider what options are open to us when we actually encounter a particular problem. At one extreme, we can allow ourselves to be overwhelmed. At the other, we can simply go on a picnic or take a holiday and ignore it. The third possibility is to face up to the situation directly. This involves examining it, analyzing it, determining its causes, and finding out how to deal with them. Though this third course may occasion us additional pain in the short term, it is clearly preferable on the other two courses of action, to the other two courses of action. If we try to avoid or deny a given problem by simply ignoring it or taking a drink or drugs, or even some forms of meditation or prayer as a means of escape, while there is a chance of short-term relief, the problem itself remains. Such an approach is simply avoiding the issue, not resolving it. Once again, the danger is that in addition to the initial problem, there will follow mental and emotional unrest. The afflictions of anxiety, fear, and doubt build up. Eventually, this can lead to anger and despair, with all the further potential for suffering, both for self and others, which that entails. Imagine a disaster such as being shot in the stomach. The pain is excruciating. What are we to do? Of course we need to have the bullet removed and we undergo surgery. This adds to the trauma. Yet we gladly accept this in order to overcome the original problem. Similarly, due to infection or to catastrophic damage, it may be necessary to lose a limb in order to save our life. But again, naturally, we are prepared to accept this lesser form of suffering if it will spare us the greater suffering of death. <coughs> Excuse me. It is only common sense voluntarily to undergo hardship when we see that by doing so, we are able to avoid worse. Saying this, I admit that this is not always an easy judgment to make. When I was around six or seven years of age, I was inoculated against smallpox. Had I realized how much it would hurt, I doubt whether I could have been persuaded that vaccination constituted a lesser suffering than the disease itself. The pain lasted fully 10 days, and I still have four large scars as a result. If the prospect of confronting our suffering head-on can sometimes seem a bit daunting, it is very helpful to remember that nothing within the realm of what we commonly experience is permanent. All phenomena are subject to change and decay. Also, as the description of reality I gave earlier suggests, we are mistaken if we ever suppose that our experience of suffering, or happiness for that matter, can be attributed to a single source. According to the theory of dependent origination, everything that arises does so within the context of innumerable causes and conditions. If this was not so, as soon as we came into contact with something that we considered good, automatically we would become happy. Whenever we came into contact with something we considered bad, automatically we would become sad. The causes of joy and sorrow would be easy to identify and life would be very simple. We would have good reason to become attached to one sort of person or thing or event and to be angry with and want to avoid others. But that is not reality. Personally, I find enormously helpful the advice given about suffering by the great Indian scholar Saint Shantideva. It is essential, he said, that when we face difficulties of whatever sort, we do not let them paralyze us. 
If we do, we are in danger of being totally overwhelmed by them. Instead, using our critical faculties, we should examine the nature of the problem itself. If we find that there exists the possibility we could solve it by some means or other, there is no need for anxiety. The rational thing would then be to, to devote all one's energy to finding that means and acting on it. If, on the other hand, we find that the nature of the problem admits to no solution, there is no point worrying about it. If nothing can change the situation, worrying only makes it worse. Take out of context, taken out of context of the philosophical text in which it appears as the culmination of a complex series of reflections, Shantideva's approach may sound somewhat simplistic, but its very beauty lies in its quality of simplicity, and no one could argue with its sheer common sense. As to the possibility that some, as to the possibility that suffering has some actual purpose, we will not go into that here. But to the extent that our experience of suffering reminds us of what all others also endure, it serves as a powerful injunction to practice compassion and refrain from causing others pain. And to the extent that suffering awakens our empathy and causes us to connect with others, it can serve as the basis of compassion and love. Here I am reminded of the example of a great Tibetan scholar and religious practitioner who spent more than 20 years in prison enduring the most terrible treatment, including torture, following the invasion of our country. During that time, those students of his who had escaped into exile would often tell me that the letters he wrote and had smuggled out of jail contained the most profound teachings on love and compassion they have ever encountered. Unfortunate events, though potentially a source of anger and despair, have equal potential to be a source of spiritual growth. Whether or not this is the outcome depends on our response. Wow. Good stuff, man. I'm loving it. Oh, yeah. I am going to uh, take a break.